our panel this morning. Bobby McDonough is a former ambassador to the UK and EU and an Irish diplomat. Uh, Pat Leahy is political editor with the Irish Times. Uh, Neve Horrigan is a sociologist and the Vice President of Academic Affairs at Mary Immaculate College. And Alison Morris is a security correspondent and columnist with the Irish News. Good morning, everyone. Morning. <coughs> Alison Morris, were you at Stormont yesterday? I was indeed, and I also have changed from the last time I was here to now working for the Belfast Telegraph. So I'm just going I to correct beg your pardon. <laughs> because my editor won't be won't okay. be happy. But yes, no, I, I was there all day. It was it was very it was a really interesting day. There was a lot of energy around the place. So tell tell us what we're not reading in the papers today. So about what you noticed and what you saw in I terms think there was of vibes a, and this and that. Yeah, there was a few things I noticed. Obviously, we have um, the Justin McNulty scandal. He appeared extremely briefly, and then took himself off just as quickly as he arrived. Explain that. So he is obviously the um, SDLP MLA who has also taken a coaching job in October um, with the GAA and there was a match yesterday that he had to be um, in attendance of and he also had to be there for the restoration of the Assembly so he had to pick one or the other. He decided to very briefly pick uh, an appearance at the Assembly and then took off. There was a lot of jokes that people were saying they've seen helicopters landing on the lawn of Stormont and all sorts of other things to to ferry him off. So the SDLP have now removed his whip and not only that as of today his picture seems to be missing from their assembly team on their own website so that may tell a story the and I read that he was told he could keep up the coaching job while uh, the uh, assembly wasn't sitting but that he would have to make a choice once the assembly started That's, sitting and again. you know I mean it's not for me to tell the SDLP what to do, but there are lots of other MLAs who have other interests. They might own businesses or, you know, they have other other part-time jobs or sit on boards. And the GAA, I think, for the SDLP, it's such a big community, Gee, such a big yeah. vote. Winner. It seems a bit short-sighted to me in terms of that. I do get the impression behind the scenes there is a bit of a personality clash in terms of Justin McNulty and the SDLP leadership. Um, he um, may not be the most popular person, uh, among that team, and that that would have helped. Had he, I think, had he been, you know, uh, maybe easier to work with in the the political sense. Okay, well, survived, we don't we we don't, we don't know that. that he's not easy to work but with. But no, he, um, yeah, he he doesn't he he, he didn't seem to be in great in great form with the rest of his colleagues. Anyway, he took himself off, so that was a, a very quick um, appearance from him. But the other parties, there was a genuine sense of hope that this could be something that could be lasting, that it could stick. Now there needs to be resilience built into that system. Um, almost immediately that couldn't happen while it wasn't sitting in terms of how it can be collapsed and who has the power to veto that. Um, but one of the other things I noticed was Sinn Féin. The parties came out one by one and they spoke to the media. The Sinn Féin um, Assembly team, which is obviously now the biggest biggest um, team in the Assembly, they came down the stairs of Stormont, those very grand stairs. It's a very beautiful building. They went down into the chamber and then party leader, now First Minister Michelle O'Neill, walked down alone it was very, it was theatrics, you know, it had clearly been really well, well planned. The the criticism that you hear most of Michelle O'Neill is, is she actually a leader? Does she have any power? Is she, you know, beholden to the men behind the scenes? I think that that was a very deliberate, you know, this is a woman on her own. She is a strong and powerful and independent leader. And she walked down the stairs with the media um, all there. And that created some very powerful images, which are in the papers today. Yeah, and that round of applause as well portraits. as she came down yeah. was quite a, a Martin moment. McGuinness and Ian Paisley, you know, at each side of those doors and you see her walking through the middle of those. So uh, image-wise, yeah. I think it was a good move from Sinn Féin in that respect. 
But yeah, I mean, it, there was there was a bit of turn and fro. And I think one of the things was when it came to the ministerial picks, the DUP appeared to have agreed something behind the scenes that they didn't then keep up with when this it came to the, the chosen education. This is the Ministry for Education. I do, and all of a sudden there seemed to be a bit of drama in the, the chamber because there had been a bit of horse trading went on in private and I don't think that that was the sequence that was meant to take to take place. And so um, they chose education. It might have been a good move for them because Sinn Féin now have economies and finance and whoever has finance is going to have to introduce quite a bit of austerity in terms of, of the budget and that can so be So the three billion will run out and yeah. yeah. And and then is there is there a question that the uh, whoever is in charge of education gets to introduce uh, 30 hours a week of free childcare um, the childcare would be a really which, popular which really policy popular. See, so okay. you know you, you can see how that was maybe a wise move from them but one of the other things I think that frustrates people is that the early picks never no one ever opts for health despite the fact that health when you ask people what is their priority it's right up there so the old genius of a gay and Robin Swan is going to be the health minister um, there was talk that maybe Sinn Féin or the DUP would pick health as one of the first picks and they didn't so again I think it sends out a message that while we all know that that is the most important issue for people and our waiting list are the worst on these islands. You know, the, the health service, my father's been in hospital for a couple of months. He's very elderly and he's not very well. So I've seen it firsthand, the absolute shambles our health service is in. Um, I mean, I tell people this and they don't believe me, but at least on two occasions they've run out of laundry and they've had no clean sheets to put on the beds and people have been taken out of beds and put in chairs because there was, you know, no sheets in the entire hospital. Um, so what you would have thought that health would have been a priority and it wasn't. It then went to yeah. the Ulster Unionists again. But I suppose there were, a lot of people did think, I suppose, what Robin Swan viewed as doing a good job during the he pandemic. Did, he did do a good a job during COVID, but he's never really been tested properly as a health minister, if you know what I mean, because he really was the health minister during the pandemic. So his entire, um, at that time, his entire priority was taken up with that. He yeah. now has to introduce so many reforms. It's too top heavy. You know, okay. there's difficult decisions to be made that okay. might be unpopular. Pat Lee, this is all very normal, isn't it? It's refreshingly normal, like even a bit of skullduggery over the choosing of the of the ministries <laughs> and that that can happen without everybody walking out and going, I'm not, I'm not playing with them anymore. I'll tell you what will be more normal, uh, Brendan, is when ministers realise that, ministers in the north, realise that uh, the vast pot of money that has been bunged to them from the British Exchequer isn't going to meet all the demands that are piling up on uh, on their desks. And, uh, and they're going to find that they have to choose not between a good alternative and a bad alternative, but between a number of alternatives, one worse than the other. They're going to have to disappoint. They will disappoint people in the uh, in the public services because they're not going to be able to introduce the sort of pay increases that public servants in the north might well feel that they deserve. They will get some pay increases. They won't get enough to make them happy. Services will get more money, much more money, some of them, and Alison mentioned childcare, but not enough uh, that they believe that they, not, not as much as they believe that they should get and not enough to keep them happy in public. I mean, we know pretty well in this jurisdiction that, uh, you know, the the task of improving public services is not one that is solved by money alone. Money helps, but there's never enough money to do everything that you want to do in health and education and pensions and public sector pay. So to that extent, normality awaits in Northern Ireland. But it's not going to be a terribly easy administration, I think, for anybody that's involved with it. OK. Um, Bobby, um, 
Alison mentioned the question there of that there was hope yesterday and that could could this stick. Are you hopeful? Watching yeah, yesterday? I am optimistic uh, because I think that um, the DUP have an interest in making Northern Ireland work. I mean, that's self-evident. The definition of the DUP is to make Northern Ireland work as part of the United Kingdom. So they yeah. have an interest so in where, it. So and I think so Sinn Féin what, also. What, yeah, Sinn Féin's motivations are interesting here. They ultimately want that state to be abolished. In the meantime, they want it to work well, do they? Well, I, I think if, if they want to be, as they do, a persuader ultimately for Irish unity, they want to be seen to work uh, in, in, in favour of all the people of Northern Ireland. And of course, as a potential uh, government in Dublin, they want to be seen to be able to run a government efficiently. And I'm also slightly, that's the main reason for being optimistic. Also, it's, it'll be slightly more difficult to collapse the institutions in future because there will be a six-month period during which if one party withdraws, the, the institutions will continue. But I think there are some important questions. I mean, one is the spirit in which parties will go into this. Uh, and from what Alison says and what you could see on TV, it was pretty good yesterday. And it may help that there are two women in charge. Um, secondly, we hope that the co-guarantorship of the British and Irish governments, which has been challenged in recent times, will be restored. And, and thirdly, it's a particularly important point, I think, is whether Northern Ireland, including the DUP, are prepared to try and seize the opportunities of having access to the single market. I mean, they, they've got what they want in terms of, at least some of what they want in terms of softening the border in the Irish Sea. But there are enormous opportunities for Northern Ireland in terms of investment and exports. And if the sort of game of the UK market is played up too much and if the so-called storm and break is used too frequently and too quickly, then it will undermine the great prospects that Northern Ireland has. We've had the the US uh, government's president's representative in Ireland last week, you know, talking about US investment in Northern Ireland. And I just hope uh, that the DUP will see that it's in their own interests that Northern Ireland should work and therefore that the economic opportunities and, and of the single market should Singapore be. Singapore notion, is it, that they, they kind of have, have access to all markets and could be... Well, they are in a perfect be, position, yeah, you know, yeah, because, yeah. because they do have access to the UK market, but they're the only place in the world that's not in the European Union that has access to the yeah, EU market. Yeah. Um, Bobby, are, are guys in your game... So, so are the DFA people and the various people behind the scenes who are trying to make this work... Do you have to be by nature optimists? We all, like the media tends to spend its time looking for the problems and things and looking for why things won't work and everything. But is there a leap of optimism required always in these kinds of things? I think optimism is a policy. Uh, yeah. you know, it, it's not just something that comes to you naturally. I mean, if you're trying to achieve something, you have to believe both in your personal life and in politics that you can achieve it. So I think there is a tendency towards optimism. But I think in this case... Um, there's actually a basis for that optimism. But I think even in relation to an issue we may come to, Gaza, it's right to try to be optimistic, yeah. not so to throw up our hands and say that Interesting. It's a conscious choice people need to make. I, Pat, I'll bring you back in, in in a minute. I just want to get uh, Neve's thoughts uh, on yesterday. Well, one of the things that's interesting in the papers today is there is very little discussion of the role of the trade union strikes in actually bringing the DUP yeah. to heel. And they were there. Yesterday. And they, they were there. Yeah. And, and to be honest, if we see the public trade public sector trade unions in the north become a very significant and very united player in terms of the potential austerity that Alison is talking about. You could see a, a, a dynamic start to shift around economic More issues. normality. More normality, exactly. One of the things that I was very... P 
pleased to see from Michelle O'Neill was the reference to the Good Friday Agreement because the core of the Good Friday Agreement is we can't look past each other. And in the sense, I think what we're seeing with Sinn Féin at the moment is a strain to, to speak to their various different audiences. You know, so on one hand, you have uh, Michelle O'Neill talking about, you know, the Good Friday Agreement, not looking past each other. And then we have kind of Mary Lou MacDonald's clarion call to the base. It'll be very interesting to see how long that kind of dual speak can be maintained given this kind of duality around uh, the leadership uh, piece. But I mean, to be honest, I think from in terms of the South, what's going to be really interesting to see is what is Sinn Féin like now in government? Because there's been so much speculation here in the South of, oh, what is Sinn Féin going to be like if they're in government? We'll, we'll, we'll start to get to see some of that. Um, and certainly if they have to impose fairly severe austerity, um, it, it may be challenging be for them to for make, them on the floor it, it, could, all, it could yeah. bring some challenges down south. Pat, you wanted to come back in there. Well, just to say, I think one more reason for optimism uh, in, in the North is that it seems to me and has seemed to me for a long time that it is clearly in the interests of the DUP and unionism yeah. more broadly to make this work, to make the North work because if your overriding pr- political priority is the maintenance of the union then that's an essentially a conservative case for preserving the status quo but this, if you want to preserve the status quo you've got to make the status quo work. Now as with the you know, all the architecture in the North. That requires Sinn Féin's participation and it requires Sinn Féin's cooperation. But certainly from the point of view of the Unionists um, and, and and from the DUP, there's a great incentive, I think, uh, to, to make this work. From Sinn Féin's point of view, I guess we will see what happens. But I think I that... Agree, uh, Alison, is I agree it, is that the Unionism has more, had more to gain from Stormont than anyone else did because... Increasingly, because it was so dysfunctional and things haven't worked for two years, public sector pay raises, everything that's going on with that. Northern Ireland starts to look like a failed experiment. A hundred years in, you yeah. go, this just isn't working. No Is it time for a plan box, B? No and if plan, models, B, yeah. if plan B isn't going to be direct rule from Westminster, because well, Westminster have no interest in that, well, what is it going to be? And I think that Geoffrey Donaldson caught on, albeit very late in the game, I am now, you know, at one point I, people were saying there will be, you know, uh, his name will be on a Republican Roll of Honour and, you know, in a New Ireland if Jeffrey Donaldson keeps this up because the the longer it looked like it wasn't working, the more you build a case for Irish unity. Um, and I do think he realised that quite quite late on. And I do think that's why most of his party, even those the ones who are so sceptical of this deal, have kept it, you know, their, their criticism of him, they've kept it quite quiet, they haven't come out and attacked him in the way they could have called for his resignation, done any of the dirty underhand tricks such as, you know, letters and no he confidence played on like David Trimble yeah. back in the yeah. day. Like they did yeah. with he wrote the playbook on dirty I, tricks. I saw uh, Lady Trimble the other night on Channel 4 News and she was recalling um, Jeffrey and 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 uh, the the interviewer said to her, "You mentioned off camera uh, knives in the back," and he was trying to really egg her on to have a go off Jeffrey, and she just said, "Look, yes, but you know what? He's learned." And she left it at that. I thought it was very gracious. Alison, can I ask you one other question? Just in terms of what, we, what, what Neve was saying there about the trade union movement and, and, and all the other things we've been talking about, is there another force here or is this just something that is, again, a kind of a stereotype we have don't, developed down here recently? Is there another force here coming from the people? Like, have people had enough of the old sectarian ways of doing things and governing and not governing and are the people now saying look enough we want this to work 
I think there's a generational thing there. So yeah. there's people of maybe my age and older who still maybe carry the baggage of the past. But the bulk majority of our voters are going to be those young people who were born without all of that. And they have different, you know, they have different priorities. They have different aspirations, have different hopes. Um, and they do want to see people working together. And that uh, is obviously the reason why you've seen the growth of the middle ground, the growth of the Alliance Party, um, people who either designate as unionist or nationalist. But also Sinn Féin's vote in the council elections dramatically jumped in. It could not just be explained by, you know, the SDLP losing out some of the votes. It had to be explained by new voters, first time voters, young people, people under the age of 25 who maybe weren't inspired to vote before. And as that image of Michelle O'Neill is, you know, the first, when you think of that building of Stormont outside, you know, you have a picture of, you know, Edward Carson standing there in a statue with his fist raised defiantly. I was in that building yesterday and it is full of the symbolism of its unionist past. And there you have not just a nationalist woman as first minister, a Republican woman as first minister. I mean, a hundred years, I'm sure some of those old boys, man, you know, they're, they're turning in their grave at the thought of it. Yeah. But it is that, I think, especially the young people, that growing nationalist youth. And actually, also, there's a growing nationalist middle class that didn't exist before. That to them is it's trying to inspire them to get out and vote. And I think that that's what Sinn Féin are trying to tap into in that, that respect. But yeah, there is a change and the change will will come with the fact that things like legacy, things like the past, you know, it doesn't resonate with young people in the way that it would maybe with people of my generation who still have one foot in that that troubled time, which they don't. Yeah, yeah. But then again, I was reminded yesterday, um, listening to Colm O'Mongan, is it 8% of people are are in desegregated education up there, but the vast majority of people are still aggregated. I believe that, you know, as a parent, and I was a parent myself who uh, quite some time ago had to make this decision, you send your children to the school you think they'll do best. And in my case, with my children, that was Catholic grammar schools because that was where they were going to thrive and do best. The problem, I think, with the integrated system, it's, it's been underfunded. And a lot of those schools, not all of them, some of them <coughs> performed very well, but some of them didn't maybe perform as well as some of those grammar schools have. And so mm-hmm. parents, you know, despite the fact that you go, go, we would all love our children to be educated together, they're going to choose where they're going to educationally thrive. So that then, I think there should be a growing push for shared education education, maybe not doing away with what works because that's, you know, those sectors have worked and they have produced. I am I am a product of that. I come from a very working class background. My mother was a cleaner. Um, yeah. I have, you know, seven brothers and sisters. We lived in a three bedroom council house, which I don't know where we must have been hung on a hook somewhere. I don't know where we all slept. Um, and grammar school, I wouldn't be sitting here speaking to you today if it hadn't okay. been for a Catholic grammar school. Okay. And that's, that's a fact. So you can't throw that out along with it. But at the same time, too, I think that we need to make sure our children are integrating more. All be that if they share classes, if they share sports, if they share all sorts of other things um, to try and push that together. And our housing system as well is segregated. All social housing is built uh, on those terms. And when they've tried to build shared housing, at times there's maybe been intimidation of tenants and things like that. So that's something that really needs tackled too, you know, in terms yeah. we could live we could live together much more harmoniously than we than we do currently. So there's a lot of architecture to be unpicked there. Pat, what what do you think the implications are here for um Sinn Fein in the Republic? I'm not sure they're all that great to to be honest. Um uh, and, and by that I don't mean that they're they're, they're not they're not good. I'm, I mean, I'm not sure they're all that significant because actually for all the attention it commands days like yesterday, uh, command right, rightfully uh, in the southern media, actually there's a whole heap of evidence that suggests that southern voters 
tend not to care all that much about what happens uh, in the north. It isn't, or at least it hasn't been in the past, a decisive factor in our domestic politics. The um, so the society. So that are we going to ha- are we going to be like? In a way, is it going to become slightly more difficult, though, for us to regard them as almost two separate parties, which in a way people do in, in their heads slightly? Is it now? Well, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, if, if you look like we have a separate, now. you know, we have a separate media. People watch different mm. televisions. I mean, the, and the Northern model is power sharing. It's very different. It's I mean, a very all contrived the of Michelle model, O'Neill yeah. being the first minister. She is completely sharing power with Emma Little Pangeli, which is completely different to a potential Sinn Féin government down south. So the dynamics of the two system are completely opposing, really, in many ways. Yeah. Okay. Could I just say uh, there seem to be uh, contradictory and unconvincing claims made about the impact of the last week on the Irish unity issue? Because on the one hand, you have uh, Mary Lou Macdonald saying that unity is now within touching distance. On the other hand, I think she said in a historical context, just in in fairness. And the head of the Orange Order said that what happened, um, the the New Deal that was reached with Sunak's government, knocks the likelihood of Irish unity out of sight. Now, the reality is that the focus is now on power sharing, the other element of the Good Friday Agreement, and on the North South institutions. And I think that was also the tone of the new First Minister's uh, comments in the Assembly yesterday. Yeah. So the, the, the constitutional so it, it issue was, it is was entirely Mary, open. It was Mary Lou Macdonald, an interloper, if you will, from the Republic, who really uh, yeah. brought up the notion of United. And Michelle O'Neill, I noticed on the news with David McCullough last night, was a little bit more subtle about it probably and did talk about a decade of opportunity and everything, but really wasn't, as the person who is in situ in Northern Ireland was not pushing it at all at this time. Yes, and given that she will have to work with the Deputy First Minister and that Sinn Féin will have to work with the DUP, I think the tone of the debate yesterday was was just right. But I suppose that's an interesting feature of this one. Up, Up to now, historically, you know, we haven't, whether we can manage, Sinn Féin can manage that dual speak between, I mean, I, I really agree with the approach Michelle O'Neill take, which was very mature, it was very composed, but with Mary Lou trying to rally the base down south, the potential for that to sabotage power sharing in the north is really significant. And I, and that's going to be a challenge for the I think the I'll tell you why I disagree. I think that Sinn Féin are very open about the fact that they're pushing for Irish unity. And we did have a lot of discussion this week saying, oh, but don't say it. You know, you might speak mm. the unionists if you say it. I mean, it's a but fact they that, know. They, <laughs> that unionism, you know, want to keep the union. They want to keep yeah, Northern Ireland's place and Sinn Féin money in Ireland. These things are not, you know, not secret. They're not as if it's, you know, it's a, some secret policy. We should be allowed to discuss them in a mature way. But I do think that Michelle O'Neill, I don't know who helped her write that speech, but I had all of the very notes, including even, you know, the apology to victims of the, mm-hmm. the conflict, all of that. And also, you know, um, I think it was the right Did she apologise? She day. said she's sorry it happened. Yeah, she apologised for all lives lost, regardless of circumstances. I think it was, you know, now I'm paraphrasing okay. here, but that was something that clearly didn't need to be included in that speech, but was for a very specific reason. And that was that type of, I suppose, unionist outreach, if you want, for, for want of a better word. She also, and again with David McCullough last night, she, she had an interesting way of framing it, which is she said... They're allowed, the unionists are still allowed to uh, have their constitutional aspiration. We're still allowed of ours. Yeah. But in the meantime, we get on with, with running the country up there. She said, we, can, we should be able to do two things yeah. at, at one time. Pat, just before we leave this, um, 
You've been doing a lot of work uh, in the Irish Times on a lot of research on uh, United Ireland and all that. With I forget who the partners in that are. It's a, the Aaron's Project, which is a, a joint Island. project yeah. of um, the Royal Irish Academy. Are people in the Republic more keen for a United Ireland than people in Northern Ireland? Is that roughly kind of... Yeah, I mean, very, very, very briefly, you know, to summarise two two years of research on that particular aspect, I mean, we examine lots of other aspects of the kind of potential future for both parts of the island. But on that particular question of unity, it's actually kind of remarkable how things are where you would have expected them mm. to be and where they were 10 years ago. So about two thirds of people in the South say they would vote for unity about uh uh, and in, in the north, it's about two to one against amongst declared voters. A little bit of movement uh, on it between uh, between the two years. So the, the, the summary of it is the north says no by a very considerable margin. The south says yes. But underneath that, there's a couple of interesting things happening. OK, amongst, give us them briefly. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, amongst them is that there is a willingness to talk about it, to have the conversation. There are people in the north, including many of them who declare themselves to be the what we call the neithers. They, they, they describe themselves as neither Catholic nor Protestant. Uh, they are, um, they're disinclined to view every single political issue through the prism of the constitutional question. That's a really interesting development uh, in the North. In the South, parallel underneath it, I think, underneath that, that certainty that people would vote for a united Ireland, is a complete ignorance of what it would mean, what changes would have to be made to the Republic to make it more accommodating. So it's viewed as a takeover, basically, yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah. For, for an awful lot of people. Yeah. So, so while the kind of the traditional certainties remain in place, there's a lot of interesting things going on beneath the surface. OK, all very interesting. Uh, I need to take a break, though. Bobby McDonough, Pat Leahy, Neve Horrigan and Alison Morris staying with us. Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1. Welcome back. Our panel is still with us. Alison Morris, who is a columnist with the Belfast Telegraph, <laughs> Neve Horrigan, uh, Pat Leahy and Bobby McDonough. Now, look, uh, there's various um, domestic uh, politics, if we can call it that here, and, and I want to kind of move through it. But first, just to set us up, Pat, uh, there's a couple of pieces uh, in the, the Mail on Sunday. John Lee is writing about the timing of an election and the Wigmore column in the Sunday Independent has a kind of a slightly different view on the timing of an election. Just, just give us the very there and your thoughts quickly and then yeah I mean you cannot have a conversation with somebody in Leinster House or around government buildings that doesn't sooner or later and in many cases sooner really? come back to this come back to this question F- Wigmore uses the word feverish is it is it feverish now the election speculation in there I'd yeah I'd be slightly feverish to call it feverish okay. but it's <laughs> certainly it's, it's, it's certainly ever present right. um, that's uh, that's for sure. I mean, as I see, there's broadly three options. There's this spring, there's this autumn, or there's the, the, the spring of next year. There is, as far as I can tell, significant disagreement to the extent that the question has been raised amongst the party leaders uh, about this. Uh, the Greens, Fianna Fáil, both very clear at leadership level uh, anyway, that they want to go the full term, that they will go until March of 2025. Um, 
Fine Gael not so clear that it uh, that it wants to arguments swaying either way uh, in 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 all parties. Uh, I think um, there's some polling on this in the uh, in the Sunday Independent State. Lots of questions, but on this uh, on this point, it seems that the 2025 uh, option is the uh, is the most popular. I mean, I I, I don't know when yeah, it's going to people be. People had enough suspect- politics, like yeah. Brenda from wherever she was from. Well, very, very possibly. And of course, there are local and European elections that will take place this year. My working uh, assumption is that firstly, that the decision hasn't been made by the Taoiseach yet. And constitutionally, it's the Taoiseach that gets to make the decision. My guess is that he will want to be in a position. He will want to be ready to go next autumn if he uh, if he decides to do so, but that he will keep open the option of next spring. Finnegan's record of calling elections is is not good. This is the other point I was going to make is that um, I think we can be sure that whatever choice Fine Gael makes will probably be the wrong one because it has a 100% <laughs> record <laughs> of choosing the wrong time for the election when it gets to choose that coming from government, coming from 1997, 2016, 2020, you can build a strong case that in all of those cases it went at the wrong time. So perhaps what Leo Varadkar should do is weigh up the options make his decision on which one to go for and then go for the other one. Yeah, OK. Um, Bobby, this story on the front of the business post, which you, you, your diplomatic skills now, uh, this, it can be the little things that, that trip you up. This uh, issue over Dublin Airport. So we have a situation here where uh, they, they, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, I think party leaders, certainly the Taoiseach and everything, are, are gung-ho saying, no, we're an island nation, etc., etc. We need to increase the cap straight away. You have members of the government in the form of the Green Party who have actually lodged ob- planning objections to, to this cap going up. Is this a problem, do you think? Well, I think, Brendan, there are, there are two stories on the front of the business post that raise the same issue. First of all, there's the issue of airport landing numbers. And second, there's the issue of data centres. Which and That's bo- a fascinating story, uh, isn't it? Indeed. And both of them raise the issue of economic development versus environmental considerations. And in, in both articles, the spokesmen for their own point of view, either the business people, the CEO of Ryanair, whatever, they speak about these issues as if they're quite simple. It's a simple choice. Uh, but in both cases, it's a difficult choice because economic development is important and environmental considers, considerations are, are important. And that's what the government has to, has, to, has to grapple with. And so I don't find it surprising that uh, different members of the government take different views. And the Green Party are there. They're elected in order to advance the environmental considerations. But the business development considerations are important as well. And I'm not an expert in, in either of those issues. But I, I do know that some sort of compromise is required and that we have to, uh, in our public policies, reflect both considerations. Yeah, it does probably point up, though, that as much as we, you know, people pragmatically go into a government together and everything, there's still ideology that we forget that people have ideologies. They are still there. It's it's like the European Union. Like people say, you know, the European Union is divided. But of course it's divided. They start out from different points of view. And it's the same in the government. They've gone in with different priorities. Okay. Now, I think uh, if we're to believe the media anyway, uh, immigration uh, is is going to be... uh, a big issue in in politics and in the next election potentially. Uh, Alison, you picked this piece in the Sunday Independent. Uh, it's an interview that Hugh O'Connell did with Helen McEntee, and the headline on it is there will probably be a lot more deportations. So the government really seems to be sending out constant clear messaging on on this area. I think there's a real concern in terms of how governments treat this because first of all, I do think that there was 
a time when the the sort of far right agitators around this, there was a policy of just ignore them and they'll go away. You know, they're just a small group of people. And that is not the case. It's grown in momentum. But you can see from the current Conservative government, um, the current Tory government, that chasing after the like of Nigel Farage over immigration and getting tougher and tougher policies, it ends up, you know, going nowhere. You know, they're currently spent millions on some sort of Rwandan scheme that not a single plane has taken off in order to try and appease those those far right instead of actually dealing with the issues. But I do think that um, immigration for a lot of people has become an issue that because those far right agitators were allowed to take over, that ordinary people feel that they can't speak out or say what it is that they feel, what it is that they are concerned around without being labelled in some way that they're sort of racist or anti-immigration or any of those things. So I think north and south of the border, we need to have a very serious conversation about what we want our island to look like, um, how we welcome people who come here to try and make a better life for themselves and people who come here to try and contribute um, and how you speed up that process because a fair immigration system um, is in everyone's best interest and the problem that we have is that it's so slow and cumbersome and then people get frustrated especially in the middle of a housing crisis if people can't find a home you know they they then start comparing themselves to other people but it has been you know a greatest Jedi mind trick of many different governments for many years that if you get you know, really poor local people and tell them that really poor people who are not from here are responsible for the problems caused by very rich uh, very rich people in government, that that is the, the greatest way to distract them from it. So just saying that we're going to completely, you're going to start deporting people. And I do think that countries that have sensible immigration policies that do make sure that people who come in are vetted and that, you know, you're not um, basically important people with you know really serious criminal convictions or problems from elsewhere would reassure the general public, but also speed that up so that anyone who does come here, they get their immigration status sorted out in a really quick time so that then they can work and contribute to society um, and those who aren't entitled to be here then they leave are, as quickly are, as possible and that is the, sa- the way to do it and that is the way to cut the legs out from under those far right racist agitators. Mm. And Eve, I think that's what the government is, is endeavouring to do. What, what jumped out at you around immigration today? Well there was a very interesting Ireland Thanks poll in the Sunday Indo which I think in fairness reflects some of the complexity around this so would you consider voting can, for... Niamh, before you give those figures can I just um, tell people that that poll was taken on Thursday and Friday of this week among a sample size of 1,394 people and there's a margin of error of plus or minus 2.7% just yeah, to yeah, give that yeah. context. Okay. So Sorry. would you consider voting for a party or candidate who holds strongly anti-immigrant views? 54% said no, 35% said yes, 11 not sure. More yeah, interesting. What do you make of that? Well, my own view and it kind of echoes a lot of, of what Alison has said here. I, I think we're dealing with at least three ho- cohorts here. Yeah. The first are the far right themselves, right? And the far right will jump on any issue which particularly exercises people. So it's very interesting to look at the farmers' protests at the moment in Europe and look at how the far right are trying to incite, you know, insert themselves in there. There's a second group, I think, of people who essentially have always been racist, but who feel that the far right have now given them licence to start saying more publicly things that they always felt. There is a thirder group, and, and Catherine Day in her report and direct provision last year acknowledged that there is a group of people who have genuine concerns about impacts on their community um, and that they, I think, have felt in the last six to 12 months a difficulty in naming those things for fear of being labelled as racist. And, and, and do you think they're the one third of the people polled here, according to this poll, who now say they would vote for someone? I'm with, not with sure, but I think that they, if they feel they can't name what is re- troubling them, I think they are pushed 
towards anti-immigrant parties and we have seen those votes spiral really quickly and I have to say one cannot underestimate the impact of the housing crisis here. Between yeah. 2004 and 2007 we had on average 100,000 people come into Ireland and we did not have the same surge as we had at this point and the main reason for that was the people coming in had housing and they had jobs and I, I, I don't think the government fully understands this. when they say there's you know, a group of people coming in from a war-torn area, they very rightly have to be housed, right? But there are people saying, well, hang on, I walk to work every day and I'm literally stepping over homeless people on the street. Why don't they have to be housed? My son is living in our spare bedroom with his girlfriend and his baby. Why doesn't he have to be housed? My daughter is driving port, from Port Leash to Limerick to go to college because she's got. Why doesn't she have to be housed? So I don't think they understand the yeah, degree to which that rhetoric. But it is say, it yeah. is a triggering. It, it is okay. a triggering rhetoric and I think it is and I, I do think there's been a certain naivety in the way the government have approached this in for so long Roderick O'Gorman was dealing with it on his own he was completely overwhelmed IPAS was completely overwhelmed and there was a lack of ownership of messaging around it and I think we're starting to see that but interestingly would you accept a refugee centre in your area if it also came with additional funding for amenities and services for the area and 54% said yes so that in itself is also very reflective of where people's fears are around yeah. its resources and its amenities. Pat, is the government getting more of a grip on this? They clearly have uh, in the last month or so really tried to start pumping out the messaging that we are listening and we are we are sorting this out. So I think what the government will do and, and actually... I think pe- people talk about this being a big election issue and I think it will be a significant election issue in the local and European uh, elections. But I'm not sure that I see a political dividing line between the big parties on it. What tends to happen in Irish politics is that the uh, the fringes put pressure on the mainstream parties and then they move. And I think that's partly what we're seeing at the moment. So the pressure on Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael particularly, has come from independent TDs and you see that bleeding in to Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael representatives at a local level. So I think what the government is attempting to do is to make the system more efficient. They're not going to change the uh, you know, to change the qualifications for getting international protection here or anything. What they're trying to do is make the system more efficient. That will involve high profile. I mean, we talked about this. Uh, we talked about this before a couple of months ago, expecting this to happen, that there will be high profile, much photographed and filmed taking up planes, taking off, uh, deporting um, on, uh, asylum seekers whose claims have been turned down. I think we can expect that. You see, there's a lot of focus within making the system more efficient, reaching decisions and and holding appeals much more quickly. Now, clearly, people still have a right to, uh, you know, first of all, to an appeals process and secondly, to go to court if they wish to have their uh, rights as they see them vindicated. But I think you'll see the system trying to act more efficiently rather than changing the actual international obligations that uh, that that Ireland has. Yeah. And and uh, bringing us back to the timing of an election, they might decide they want a year to 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 bed that in and make that message clear well, to people. Yeah, too. this is yeah. the. I mean, this is you know what Leo Varadkar will be faced with. Do we wait? in the expectation that things will get better, whether it be on housing or on immigration, or do we run the risk of waiting and then being ambushed by someone? Events or something, yeah. Uh, And and listen, just to mention, as you heard there in the bulletin, firefighters are still battling a fire at a disused 
a former nursing home near Britis in South County Dublin. Seven fire engines were called to the scene at 7am. Protests had been held there as recently as yesterday amid speculation about plans to house asylum seekers in the buildings. Local councillors say they had sought clarification from the Department of Integration in recent weeks about plans for the buildings, but they had not been given a clear answer. Bobby, do you want to just give a quick view on that before I take a break? On not on the fire, on the on the the broader story. Yes, sure. I mean, I th- I, th- I think that we're fortunate uh, not to have a Nigel Farage type party in this country, yeah. uh, and I think our government parties, as well as Sinn Fein and Labour and Social Democrats and so on, uh, deserve credit for not trying to exploit the issue. You might quibble with one or other thing they say, but I think we're really lucky in that. Secondly, I think it's really good, important to give a positive message about migration in general. And Helen McEntee had a message on social media in the last few days, which was very timely about the fact we need migrants. Uh, they are contributing to our society, not just three billion in taxes every year, but also to local communities. Um, they're not taking our jobs. We have nearly full uh, full employment and Ireland is not full. I think it's really good to have that positive messaging. But as regards asylum seekers, which tend to be viewed differently by the, by the public, we both need to treat them properly to make them welcome. To, to treat them humanely, accommodate them, end direct provision, but also to have a, a balance in our approach so that it's not an open door policy. And I think the government's trying to do that. Okay. One look, thing a lot saying. of people would argue that uh, Ireland may not be full uh, geographically. I think David Quinn or someone is making this point today. But if you go back to the people Neve was talking about, who, it's the uh, housing crisis who, is putting so much yeah, pressure Yeah, like the yeah. housing is full anyway. Pat, briefly, Did you I want to take a break. Um, like, there's been a large number of arson attacks against facilities like this. And if this goes keeps going on, someone is going to be killed. There's going to be some class of a tragedy. I, I find it incredible that there hasn't been yeah, a single Yeah, I don't arrest. think we know that that's arson yet, but... But I, Even I if it do isn't, think the point yeah. stands. Yeah. Right, one okay. of the things that's emerging in a lot of communities is when this this issue opens up, people are now as fearful of the protests, as even yeah. more so than they are of potentially a, a group of migrants coming into any facility. They're fearful around the, the backlash now as much as they, and that's creating an additional problem. OK, our panel staying with us, Bobby McDonough, Pat Leahy, Neve Horrigan and Alison Morris. Let's take a break. Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1. Welcome back. Our panel still with us, Bobby McDonough, Pat Leahy, Neve Horrigan and Alison Morris. Um, Neve, have you been following the Brianna Joy story yeah, in the UK. I have. It feels like a story for our times in many yeah. ways in terms of like, obviously, it's a very specific tragedy, but the background aspects to it and everything. It's, it's very hard to read. I can actually, there's a lot of uh, articles in the paper this week and I can see a lot of people skipping over them uh, because they're hard to read. For me, I suppose I'm coming from the background of somebody who's worked in higher education for 25 years. I've seen a huge transformation in those 25 years and that, you know, you routinely have trans students and staff. And the saddest, oh my God, the saddest thing in in the articles that I read was because one of the things that I, you know, because the whole trans issue, you know, there's a big culture war around it. But beneath the culture war, there's just people. And one of the things in in my interactions... So just so people are are aware, in case they have been avoiding the story, two teenagers, a really horrific and brutal, deliberate planned killing of another teenager uh, and and that Brianna Joy was a transgender girl. And one of the things that I always have encountered in, in my interactions with trans people, particularly young people, is they are so lonely. They're such lonely people. You know, there's a lot of loneliness. And her um, mother was so proud of her that day 
of, for Brianna that, that Brianna was leaving the house to go and yeah. meet and, her and friend that was because what she really left the house. Struck me is that the mom was saying, you know, this Brianna was so lonely. Uh, she now had a friend, and these these two people exploited that the vulnerability created by that loneliness more than anything else. I have to say, I actually found that really hard to read. It was very upsetting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Alison, you were looking at that. It's too. just, I mean, it, well, children killing children is always something that, you know, it's, it's difficult to get your, your head around. But also I heard an interview with the principal of their school and that just saddened me because um, Brianna was such a vulnerable child. She wasn't even educated along with the rest of the children in the school because she was so anxious and riddled with anxiety. So she arrived later, she left earlier. She was taught um, in a, a sort of, not in an isolation, but in a sort of unit away from a lot of the other children. And that is where she met one of her, her killers. And you, I think that the conversation not only needs to be about, which I know that Brianna's mum wants to discuss now, and it's, it's one of the interviews she's given about this access to the dark web and how these young people were able to access really, really violent um, uh, content online and there being no age restrictions or anything to that and how that can be dealt with, maybe by an online safety bill or something like that. So there's that aspect of it and what that kind of, you know, violent content is doing to young people's minds, but also how that we, you know, as a society and the education system and everything else occurs for those really vulnerable pupils. And a lot of them, not just they might be, you know, struggling with their, their gender identity. A lot of them are also maybe struggling, struggling, you know, with anxiety, with sensory issues. A lot of children, too, can have be on the spectrum and have autistic um, aspects that need to be dealt with as well. And it should be well. said, the two children involved here had a lot of, uh, the, the, the two teenagers, the perpetrators, not to excuse them or anything, had huge multiplicity of, of issues yeah, themselves. Yeah, she'd been expelled from school. There'd yeah. been all sorts of issues, which yeah. is how they, she ended up coming in, in contact yeah. with, yeah. with Brianna. So, I mean, it's it's how you support children so that there isn't that loneliness and there is support and they do feel that they can be um, educated among their peers. I think that saying because a child is riddled with anxiety, well, here's what we'll do. We'll let you arrive later and, you know, go home earlier and we'll keep you away from everyone who you're afraid of instead of then trying to mm-hmm. say, look, how can we get this young girl so she could have friends and so she could have support? Her mother broke my heart. She actually texted her mother from the bus saying how anxious she was, you know, on the way to this meeting, but thinking she was going to meet a friend, a child with no friends. You can imagine um, what it took to get her out of the house. It is horrific. And what I also think is, as as a journalist, this is something completely different. The sentencing was televised and also then the anonymity was lifted because obviously they're under 18, the two perpetrators. And I do think that that's a conversation that we should also be having because... Not, I hate televised courts. It turns, you know, that American system mm-hmm. makes court systems seem like reality TV shows and they're not. But to televise those sentences and remarks in terms of open justice and also helping people understand why some people get a certain sentence and others don't, you know, I think that that was really helpful because those those sentences and remarks, I think, first of all, they give, you know, they, they brought they brought the personality of the victim out. They really give her a voice and give her, a, a, a you know, a life that, you know, she maybe wouldn't have had if you were just reading it in flat print and also... Um, I do think that it helps people understand how our justice system works and why some people might get a lesser sentence than others. OK, OK. Um, Bobby, I, I, I want to touch on this because I feel it could be mo- uh, more of a story than or, or possibly the next development in things here that the, the Business Post kind of put it inside. But basically, so Michal Martin's plan in, in going to... Um, in going to Washington is that he is going to push there saying for the recognition of Palestine as a state and also a suggestion in in a, in a bigger piece that uh, actually he could be pushing an open door that Biden is ready to put his foot down as well. 
By the way, first comment, I'd say that this transitions from the last story. When you think of the tragedy of the child killed in England and you now have had uh, tens of thousands of yeah. civilians killed in Gaza and 17,000 children who have lost their parents or become separated from them and they will all have mental health, health issues, as indeed all the, the children of Gaza will have. But the issue of recognising a Palestinian state, there are two separate issues here. The, the first is to have a two-state two solution whereby a new Palestinian state is properly created and uh, given its rights and allow Palestinians allowed to run their own West Bank and Gaza state. And Ireland is very committed to that. And the United States has indicated that it is also supportive of that. The second question, which I think the one you're referring to and Miel Martin going to Washington, is whether here and now to recognise a Palestinian state. I mean, there are several um, EU countries that do that, but only ones that were under the Soviet regime before. Okay. And uh, it's open to Ireland to recognise Palestine now. And I think it, there's every case for doing it. It's about equality. I mean, the Palestinians have every bit as much right to a state as the Israelis do. But there is a question of tactics, which is, I think what Michal Martin has said, um, to explore whether other countries will do it with us. Not because we necessarily are afraid to do it on our own, but because if Ireland and, say, Spain and Belgium and some other European countries were to do it together, that would have a bigger impact on the region and, and globally. Pat, would that be a more useful thing to do than, than joining the uh, case, uh, the gen South African genocide case, which could take years to play out? I mean, it would be a symbolic gesture uh, yeah. uh, as well, but possibly one that might mean more to Palestinians. The difficulty, I suppose, as Bobby would acknowledge, is what Palestinian state are you uh, are you recognising? Well, I think there's but an acceptance that the security of Israel would also need to be uh, looked after in that, isn't there? Yeah, of course. And Hamas has been administering uh, Gaza, you know, for, you know, nearly 20 years now. And clearly the one thing that people have, that, that EU leaders are saying, and Leo Varadkar was talking about this. I was in Brussels for the summit during the week and Leo Varadkar was talking explicitly about this, about talking to other EU countries, about jointly recognising Palestine and also reviewing the EU-Israel uh, uh, tra trade agreement as well. So there's, there's clearly uh, uh, moves being made in that direction. My sense is, is looking in from the outside is that the, uh, those noises coming out of Washington and also David Cameron, the British Foreign Secretary, was talking about recognition during the week as well, is that that is as much... Uh, an attempt to put pressure on the Israeli government over the um, uh, over the attacks in Gaza, as it is in and of itself a decision to to okay. recognise Palestine. Okay, we'll keep an eye on that. Uh, Neve, before we finish up, we should talk about uh, Taylor Swift. We probably, have to talk about <laughs> Taylor Swift, <laughs> Brendan. It's to, to many people listening, is probably the, the most important person in the world, the most important story in the world. So you picked out Hadley Freeman in the Sunday Times today. Taylor won't do what she's told and men hate it. Yeah, so uh, Taylor ruling the world. Uh, I have two massive Taylor Swift fans in my house and obviously there's a huge conspiracy theory now that um, the Democrats have rigged the outcome of the Super Bowl to give Taylor a platform to come out and support Joe Biden. And that her relationship with the, who's Travis the Kelsey. Yes. Yeah. Which has been going on for, for six months now that that's yes. all a plan as well it's by all the a deep plot. state. It's all a deep state plot. Um, Should so they Taylor not? rules the world apparently I mean, she can swing yeah. an American presidential <laughs> election now. Should they not just run Taylor Swift? You know it's a thought. No she's a, I think she's a non-state actor that's key to the thing but as we know 
look, the tech companies, everything else, non-state actors are taking over the world. So <laughs> maybe Taylor Swift is I the took, latest. I took my um, granddaughter to the cinema to see her Eras tour on the, the big screen. She's making so much money selling concert tickets that you now buy tickets to a cinema to watch a concert. Yeah. Um, and halfway through it, um, we were up dancing and when I look around, there was girls behind us about 12 or 13 filming me so I'm pretty sure I'm on some TikTok video somewhere on the internet of, of them going why is that old lady dancing around talk, a cinema talk about the dark no, web no, <laughs> the, the, the main question there Alison is were you dancing to uh, to appease the child or were you dancing in your own right I was pretending to dance to appease the child but I was quite enjoying it myself as well okay are you a Taylor Swift fan <laughs> well I didn't even know half her songs until my um, granddaughter became obsessed with her as most young women I think under the age of 15 are at this point in time I'm an extremely popular grandfather now because I managed to get four tickets for the oh, concert wow. next year. Oh, wow. I, I wouldn't have until recently recognised her. But it's yeah, but the real well. question, are you bringing them yourself or are you sending no, them off? No, two of my daughters are bringing two of my granddaughters. Okay, so you just threw money at the problem. Exactly. <laughs> there's, no, there's no personal yeah, commitment bribe there. Bribe you at a problem. Okay, uh, thanks very much to my panel this morning. Bobby McDonough, former ambassador to the UK and an EU Irish diplomat. Pat Leahy, political editor with the Irish Times. Neve Horrigan, sociologist and vice president of academic affairs at Mary Immaculate College. And Alison Morris, security correspondent and columnist with the Belfast Telegraph. That was excellent, guys. Thank you very much.